Here we bring you progressive voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, remember, if you appreciate what we do, we could use your support. You can visit the donations page of the Fallon Forum website, or you can make a donation, or you can make a monthly pledge, even better. Thanks also to our local business partners who help uh, sponsor this program, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And uh, locally owned and a specialty food store as well. Dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m., and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, folks, here's our lineup for today. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, later in the program about the uh, Global Climate Report, the UN IPCC sixth assessment. We're going to be talking with Jerry Schnoor about that and what it means for those of us here in the U.S. We'll also be talking with David Karad Hari about the Iowa Climate Scientist uh, report that's coming out. This is a, a new reiteration of that. And we'll also talk about the CO2 pipeline, and Kathy Burns will join us for an October Garden Q&A. But first, it's my pleasure to welcome to the program David May. David is a biofuel consultant. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be back. Now, a lot of people, including me sometimes, it depends on the level of detail, uh, don't fully understand the distinction between ethanol and biodiesel. There, there are complications. There are, um, there are levels of nuance that most people aren't familiar with. So maybe just before we talk about biodiesel's carbon footprint, give me a brief overview of what is biodiesel. Excellent question, Ed. Thank you for that. So in the transportation sector today, liquid fuels principally take two forms either it is diesel fuel or it is gasoline. Those two are not typically mixed and a vehicle is designed to run on one or the other. Heavy trucks typically operate on biodiesel and passenger cars are more inclined to run on gasoline. Now, and trucks running either biodiesel or just straight up diesel from gas, from, from oil. That, that right. is correct. Okay. So ethanol is the replacement fuel for gasoline. It can replace it either at a 10% level, which is common. It can be up to E15, which pumps are now being uh, fielded in Iowa to, to offer E15. It can also be offered in what they call an E85 configuration yeah. with flex fuel vehicles. Right. And in that case, you're replacing 85% of the petroleum uh, with, with a corn alcohol. And right. corn is the feedstock for um, making a bike. Although it doesn't have to be, but that's another conversation. Correct. Yeah. I'm sure that there are a variety of feedstocks that can be used to make ethanol, but corn was really uh, there, uh, was where they got started. Right. In a similar way, soybeans were the first feedstock for biodiesel. Biodiesel, just like ethanol, can be blended at a variety of levels. Mm -hmm. At the 2% level, you get enough lubricity to offset all of the reduction in sulfur that has gone on over the years. And that is a great word. And that is a great that is a great Lubricity. Thing. Lubricity. I love it. Right. Okay. Right. So I'm gonna win a Scrabble with that word someday. Excellent. I I'm promise. Glad to offer you that <laughs> tip, sir. 
Biodiesel can be blended at a, the common levels are 2%. Today, there are tax breaks if you blend at, a, at an 11% level. Um, there is also B20, but is the lowest level at which biodiesel is recognized as an alternative fuel by the EPA. And um, I am uh, talking with uh, clients today about a conversion technology that will allow virtually any diesel-powered truck to be converted to run-on pure biodiesel for the duration of the duty cycle. That's B100. So the, the ambition is to get it up to the point where you are running on 100% biodiesel. For those customers who, who have a good application for that, okay. B100 does offer up to an 85% reduction in greenhouse gases. Okay. And again, right now, soybeans are the primary feedstock for biodiesel. I would say that soybeans still represent about 50% of the feedstock used in that industry. That is correct. And the other 50%? And the other 50% comes from mostly waste products that are a byproduct of the food chain. So let's look at the um, animal business. So here in Iowa, we raise lots of pigs and lots of cows and lots of chickens and lots of turkeys. All of those have fat and that fat is taken away from the meat during the processing of those. And then the fat becomes the feedstock, just like the soy oil. Mm, okay. Because even with the soybean, first you have to crush the bean and that uh, and the, the 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 meal that comes out of that is also used in the food chain so the soy oil is actually a byproduct of making food in the first place so one concern that people have about ethanol production is the uh, is the carbon footprint the the the, the, the amount of um of uh, of energy that goes into the production of the corn itself the processing of the ethanol the the water usage and, um, and then the carbon emissions that all come out of that. And now, again, the proposal here in the upper Midwest is to capture those carbon emissions, put them in a pipe, and run that pipeline up to North Dakota, where it's going to be stored in the ground. Lots of people have lots of concerns about this for various reasons, not just the environmental side, but also the, the, the aspect of using eminent domain to take land from farmers to, to bury that pipeline. Um, but again, it sounds like biodiesel is in, is a very different animal. Uh, there, there will be I don't know how I don't know how much CO two is emitted in the processing of biodiesel, but I know there's no conversation about piping that CO two anywhere. Right. I am not aware of I am not aware of the CO two emission uh, profile. That is not mm -hmm. really that right. is not really an, an area of ex, of my expertise. But I do know that the energy that goes into biodiesel originated in the sun. The sun shined upon our planet, and the, and the, and the animals and the plants captured that energy. They, they stored that, and so when that energy is re-released, um, it is energy that has come to us um, originally from the sun. Yeah, and the same with uh, oil, of course, but this is more, a more recent sun capture. Uh, this is not capture of the sun done by dinosaurs. That is correct. You know, that's <laughs> In other good, words, it's a little more sustainable. That's a good point, Ed. Uh, now that you mention it, uh, dinosaurs are not required to make biodiesel. Okay, so the, 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 the Sinclair brontosaurus is a little bit of a false advertisement. Well, <laughs> well... All right, I'm going too far with that. Movie. Very well, yes. sir. Very well. Yeah, but every... 
Every unit of fossil energy to make biodiesel results in at least 4.56 units of renewable fuel, mm -hmm. which is the best of any, which is the best rate of any of any commercially available fuel today. Now, is there any competition or tension between the biodiesel and ethanol industries? By virtue of us getting to different vehicles, that tension is largely absent. Right? I think we began with these classes of vehicles run ethanol or gasoline. A different class runs diesel uh, or biodiesel in this country. So only to the extent that you are struggling with the decision, should I buy a diesel vehicle or should I buy a gasoline vehicle, to that extent we would be in conflict with each other. So how does the biodiesel industry respond to the movement toward electric cars? Great question, Ed. So electric cars as I said, are not necessarily our foe, right? I mean, we're all trying to decarbonize the planet. We have that common goal. And we recognize that, that the smaller passenger vehicles today do not make a good fit for diesel engines. Therefore, we are happy uh, to recognize that we do need an all-of-the-above solution. An electrification of passenger vehicles is something that we're completely comfortable with. Won't it, in the end, uh, put out of business a lot of the, uh, lot of the uh, folks involved with biodiesel production? I don't believe that there will be cannibalization uh, from one against the other. Okay. The, the gasoline sector, by virtue of how their engines work, just don't make a good fit for those in the diesel area. Mm. The engines are substantially different. Mm. Okay. Well, interesting stuff. Uh, David, uh, any last word for our audience before we move on to a short break? Yeah. So... Um, I, uh, I just want to know that uh, consumers at the pump play an important part of shaping how this looks. And if you, are, if you have a diesel-powered vehicle, I would encourage you to uh, use biodiesel uh, whenever it is available. And if, uh, if this is my last opportunity, I do want to give a shout-out <laughs> yes. to my local radio station in Ames, your affiliate, KHOI, and uh, their guy, Gildy. Uh, who recruited me to do uh, some uh, some uh, promotional work for them as well. So very happy to represent. Yeah, yeah community-owned stations are, are just, uh, uh, unfortunately, a very difficult uh, um, creature to manage these days, given that the public airways have basically been turned over to a few large corporate interests. So I, yeah. I sincerely appreciate the local programming offered by my local radio station in Ames, KHOI. All right. David, thank you so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with David May, a biodiesel consultant about biodiesel, and this is really the tip of the iceberg. We can talk a lot more about this, and maybe we'll have to have you back on some other time. I would sincerely enjoy that, Mr. Fallon. When we come back from a short break, uh, Jerry Schnorr is going to join us. We're going to be talking about the U.N., uh, IPCC, that's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the latest report and what it says for our corner of the world. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless. 
even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, folks. Good to have you here today. And remember, what you hear on this program, you won't hear on the corporate-owned stations. And you can support the alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor of the Fallon Forum. You can email me at ed at fallonforum.com for details. Thanks also to our business partners, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Our cat loves her. Our chickens, I guess they love her too, if chickens are capable of love. Uh, learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Clipsham knows we have to build better health for people and the planet and the services he provides are committed to that goal. That's Architecture by Synthesis. I would like to welcome to the program Jerry Schnur, and uh, we're going to be talking about the impact of the Iowa, Iowa, the International Panel on Climate Change, that's IPCC. We're going to be talking about that um, entity's report uh, um, on climate, their sixth assessment of the state of climate change. Jerry, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. It's good to be here. Yeah, so, um, and remind us, you are at the University of Iowa. Right, and I'm the co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, which uh, is, encompasses uh, climate change research for the state of Iowa and, and regionally as well. Yeah, and you've, you've done a lot of work on the climate situation for years now. It's true. Uh, like you, I've been to just about all the major uh, conference of the parties, uh, usually as a member of the media, and uh, I've written about it. And gosh, I've taught about this Ed, now since 1990. So sometimes it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. <laughs> and we have the, uh, the COP26 Climate Summit coming up in Glasgow uh, starting in less than a month. And, uh, you know, that, again, that's a creature of the U.N., and another creature of the U.N. is the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and their recent assessment, the sixth such assessment they've done, is a pretty serious and dire picture of what we're looking at in terms of the changing climate. That's right. You know, the reports, uh, I've tried to follow them pretty closely as, a, as one who teaches about it, and They've gotten more and more certain. There's some differences in this one. I'll, I'll mention it uh, for your listeners. Uh, and I would say they, the language is stronger and the need for action is, is clearly more intense. For example, uh, the United Nations Secretary General Guterres calls this a code red for humanity. And they use words in the report, Ed, like 
It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the planet. Now, unequivocal, I had to look it up. It means leaving no doubt, indisputable. Uh, we didn't see words like that before in previous reports. So the evidence as it comes in, uh, the United Nations group is running 34 different models from all around the world. The evidence is just mounting and becoming uh, yeah, unequivocal. So what do you say to the, 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 the shrinking number of people, shrinking but still vocal, who say, well, these are just a handful of scientists who are pretty much bought and paid for by, by, by government grants? Well, you know, first of all, it's not a handful. Uh, if you count all six reports, the, all the working groups, uh, it's, it's something like 2,000 scientists altogether. Mm. And uh, we're just talking today about the first report, the working group on physical science basis of climate change. But second of all, something like 97% of scientists in the world, according to polls, believe that humans are causing uh, climate change and that it's a pretty serious problem. So this is not any flash in the pan. This is really across the board. Uh, scientific uh, yeah. opinion uh, has agreed that these threats are real and they're due to humans. And it's pretty, uh, again, it's uh, unequivocal. Is that the right word? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's pretty serious in terms of what it says about the impact globally. What, uh, what are, the, are, there, are, are there reference points in the assessment as to what we're looking at in, say, the upper Midwest? Of the U.S.? Yes, yes, there are. They do. That's something that has changed through the times of the reports. Now they do regional assessments. We're a part of Central North America. And what it says for us is that it's uh, um, high confidence that we will experience even more heavy precipitation events in the future, uh, of course, causing flooding. These are the events that uh, only used to occur uh, one percent of the storm events, uh, the, the very uh, most serious ones, and they're going to double in frequency. So, a one in ten uh, year precipitation event, heavy precipitation, would now occur every five years uh, in the future as a result of climate change for us. What about drought? I mean, drought is 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 the prevalent, uh, you know, weather pattern right now in the upper Midwest. Yes, uh, we're in a drought right now, and that's the interesting thing. The models indicate that in the future we will have more of this heavy precipitation, uh, but uh, because we're sort of a humid area and humid areas are getting uh, wetter, uh, but uh, the droughts, uh, the verdict is sort of out on the droughts in the models for the central part of North America. Western U.S., it's clear they're going to have more droughts, but here in the central U.S., the models are, um, they don't agree, the 34 models. And so there's little confidence that our frequency of droughts will get worse here in this report. So what, 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 how would you explain the fact that those models disagree? That's interesting. Well, uh, on the global basis, you know, for the whole planet, they don't disagree much. They, they really uh, have very similar projections out into the future all the way to 2100. But uh, for the regions, when you, we, we call it a mesoscale model, you know, when you try to break it down by regions, the results get less and less certain in each model. And therefore, the 34 models don't agree with each other so well. Hmm. And so for the, uh, for the upper Midwest, definitely wetter, 
Stronger yeah, storms. Definitely, maybe... definitely wetter, definitely warmer, definitely more humid, but not the kind of heat waves that are projected for the Mediterranean, for South Africa, and for Western United States. Not that. And the Western United States, uh, I mean, the, the way it's going, it, it almost looks like there are going to be huge areas of the West that are no longer going to be habitable. Yes, and uh, we've talked about it before, Ed, but I, I, I tell my students, you know, uh, you can't get uh, wildfire insurance anymore in many places in California. You can't get flood insurance anymore in many places on the uh, eastern seaboard and in Louisiana and Mississippi. And, you know, uh, uninsurable is the first step to uninhabitable. And that's where we are right now. We're mm. already, even with the one degree Celsius or two degrees Fahrenheit warming that we've experienced so far, we think we're on our way to about five degrees Fahrenheit warming. Even with that much so far, a fraction of what is going to occur if we don't uh, act fast, uh, we're already becoming uninhabitable. We're already creating uh, climate refugees. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty serious. And, it's, um, very, it's very serious. You know, uh, I, I also tell my students that we shouldn't say natural disasters anymore. We should say climate change disasters because uh, one of the new things about this report is the uh, ability to assess what fraction of a, of a terrible event uh, is due to climate change. And so th that's also new. But just like the COVID pandemic, Ed, uh, climate change is killing people. We're just not keeping a report of the body count. Right, as we are with COVID. That's a good point. So, the, yes. um, yeah, you know, again, there's plenty of things that need to change. Obviously, we need to reduce quickly and eventually eliminate our reliance on fossil fuel. What about the carbon capture conversations that are happening now? Uh, various, various, um, various strategies being proposed, including one here in the upper Midwest, uh, taking carbon emissions from methanol plants, putting it in a, in a pipeline and running that pipeline up to North Dakota. Um, a lot of landowners are opposed to that because they don't want to see their land taken through eminent domain. But there's a lot of concerns about it too regarding the environment and the water potentially, potential impacts of a spill uh, or rupture, but also in terms of climate. Um, Right. That we're not capturing. Well, you know, first of all, I'm a big proponent of uh, what we call negative carbon emissions in the report. But uh, I think the first thing we should be doing is massively reforesting the planet. We have lots of places where there once were trees that need to have trees again. We have lots of marginal lands in Iowa that should be in uh, perennial crops, putting carbon back into the soil. But the kind of carbon sequestration that you're talking about at uh, a pipeline of liquefied carbon dioxide coming from ethanol plants, that is more controversial. I should say, first of all, if you were going to oppose a pipeline, though, you should have opposed the Dakota Access Pipeline, really? as, you, as you did. And, and a lot you know, of people your, did, yeah. <laughs> listeners know. That one was ridiculous because they last 50 or 75 years, and we can't even burn the oil that is already discovered. We have to leave it in the ground. But this pipeline at least would do one thing. If they did it well, if they pay the farmers well, if they fail to ruin the land for the farmers, if they can get the farmers on board, 
it could reduce emissions from these ethanol plants. And I don't see biofuels, unfortunately, I think we should turn the page on biofuels, but I don't see them going away in the next 20 years. And we need reductions right now in this decade. And so I, I'm, uh, I have mixed feelings about it. I could be for the pipeline if it was done well uh, and if it uh, put the CO2 in deep geologic disposal, it would reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from our ethanol. That's plants. one big concern is that they say they're going to put it uh, deep underground, but they don't commit to that for the long haul. And my no, and you know, I suspect that they eventually will do what we call in the business secondary oil recovery or right. enhanced oil recovery because the additional pressure from the liquefied uh, CO2 does help to recover oil and gas from the Bakken yeah. field in North Dakota. I can pretty much assure you beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's what they have planned. Uh, <laughs> my uh, re recorded testimony of my questioning of them at the Astoria County Public Hearing you know, they, they said, yeah, this is our plan right now. They wouldn't commit to it over the long haul. They wouldn't commit to it in writing. And, uh, again, the, 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 the fact that that's what CO2 has been used for and it's going to an area where they could use it, yeah, pretty much tells me that's what they're going to do. Well, well, very, very good. I, I actually watched uh, your testimony, and it, oh, was, it right. was compelling. Yeah, well, thank you. Hey, Jerry, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh Again, I, I, we, we, all eyes are going to be on Glasgow in the next uh, month, and really, oh, for sure, I would be there, but for the pandemic. But I will be online uh, there and Good. working with my students about what it means. I'd love to get a report back from you as your, as your, your impressions of how it's going when we, when we hit that point in early November. Nice talking to you. Thanks, Jerry, so much, folks. We've been talking with uh, Jerry Schnur. We'll be back in a minute with more conversation on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Heartland, first week of October, temperatures in the 70s, some temps forecast to go into the 80s. Ouch. Hey, you can support this alternative to the right-wing shock jocks by becoming a monthly sponsor. Check us out on the Fallon Forum website. That's fallonforum.com. Thanks again to the local businesses who help sponsor this program and also our nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, 
building rural urban coalitions to uh, fight climate change and to push back against the misuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. Learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes, workshops, and farm tours. On uh, You can get information about all that uh, online. You can also learn how to turn your yard into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. The fact that we've had a September with temps in the 80s, 90s, um, and now we're into October, temps in the 80s, 70s, and I'm thinking, is there anybody out there left who does not understand that the climate is changing? With me to talk about um, related matters, <laughs> uh, David Karat Hari. He's the Chair of Environmental Science and Sustainability at Drake University. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be here. I want to talk about the upcoming, uh, the, the soon-to-come-out um, uh, assessment by Iowa climate scientists about the impact on our state. And then I want to take a bigger look at what's going on in the world, but also uh, your take on the, on the weather. Um, again, you know, we're all loving it right now. I mean, this is great stuff. You know, shorts, t-shirts, early October. You know? Right. I, mean, I like the cool, but but yeah. <laughs> well, and I think so does our agriculture. <laughs> our crops could use some cool right now, and uh, but and some uh, water. we could also use some some rain. Yeah, but but is it is it? What do you say to people who say, "Well, this is just great weather, and there's no connection to the climate crisis"? <laughs> well, again, it's always hard to to you know talk about specific weather in and you know climate because there are always fluctuations yeah. but um, but yeah I mean certainly as I think everybody always points out this is the kind of thing that we expect to see more of as temperatures warm um, and it's it's frustrating um, you know we, we just uh, yesterday took a canoe uh, flotilla with our university we took uh, 30 students down the raccoon river um, and, you know, it's at one of the lowest points, you know, yeah. it's, it's been at. Um, I, I'm seeing lots of uh, uh, new canoers getting stuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah did, lots did, of new did, canoers did got happen? stuck yesterday. Did, did happen. Okay, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, finding that channel is tough when the water is this low. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, getting water for drinking and all kinds of other things that, that probably matter a lot more. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean. It's it's clear like we, we, we know what's we know what's going on and we know what to expect in the future. Um, and, you know, I when I talk to people that are skeptical of climate change, you know, they, they, they point to, well, you know, here's here's the other reason why this might be happening. And here's the other reason why this might be happening. But, you know, if you take a broad, a broad look, um, you know, it's pretty clear what's happening. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I th that, that, that would be my take on on the weather. And a few years ago, you helped convene a group of Iowa scientists who began, who did a, a kind of a, a detailed assessment of, the, of climate change's impact on Iowa. And you started looking at, well, uh, here, here are some things that we can be pretty certain of. And that, um, that uh, community of scientists and, and thinkers and academicians has, has grown. And you have, what, close to 200 people now who are 200 yep. Iowa scientists and leaders who are signed on to that. Yep. So a little over a little over 200 um, people have signed on to this year's statement. Uh, we've been doing it since 2011, so this is our 10th anniversary of putting out annual statements on um, what uh, we feel Iowans should know about climate, what you know maybe isn't being communicated, what mm -hmm. how it matters here in particular. Um, and uh, we have people this year signed on from 37. Um, uh, schools and universities mm -hmm. or 
colleges and universities around the state. So uh, pretty much all of them. Are they, are they all scientists? They all teach climate-impacted um, uh, courses or do research on mm-hmm. in climate-impacted fields. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, scientists. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious, have you approached anyone who says, no, I don't want to be a part of that? I don't agree. Yeah. Um, about five years ago, I have spoken with actually the only Iowa scientist that I've uh, that I've reached out to um, who said um, that that she didn't think climate change was a big deal. Um, and so, you know, we, we and I've reached does she, out. Does she still think that? Uh, as far as I know, we haven't. Time for another phone call. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but yeah, so this is out of out of hundreds that that you know um, we've spoken with and have have um, you know agreed to sign every year. I mean, essentially, the, the way it works is we we put together a, a a document, we share it with the the broader group, we have mm-hmm. conversations to make sure that that everybody's comfortable with with all the wording. So it means that we generally come out with a you know more conservative um, statement than a lot of people would like, but we want it to be a consensus statement. Right. Um, and so literally of, you know, all the people I've spoken with in Iowa, um, you know, there's one I'm aware of who, uh, one one person teaching, you know. <laughs> okay. Are similar statements being put together by scientists in other states? Uh, not that I'm aware of. So we um, we did this in 2011, I think. Um, we, we heard from a few... Uh, other states, uh, people in other states that were interested in doing something, and, and, and they may have. I haven't followed up, but um, uh, but I'm, I'm not aware of, of specifics. And again, the uh, I, I imagine the assessment has changed, uh, evolved a bit over the past 10 years. Yeah, there's a lot more certainty in the human impact. If you, you know, the, the IPCC came out saying, you know, the human impact is unequivocal at this point. And, you know, that wasn't, it wasn't at that level at 2011. Um, uh, we have a lot more um, understanding of local impacts. The, the downscaled models are so the, the, the local models are, are better now and are doing a better job of, of reproducing what we're seeing. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot that we've we've learned in the last yeah. 10 years and how we're assessing and, things differently. And basically, wetter, stronger storm, wetter overall, stronger storms, periods of drought, possibly, probably. Yeah, and, and I'd say the, the, the wetter overall, um, yeah, a lot of that comes specifically in intense rainfall events. So it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, higher soil moisture, things like that, um, because a lot of that runs off. And then since it's so, so yeah, we're, we're expecting, especially warmer nights, um, more extreme uh, rainfall events, a mix of uh, dry and very mm-hmm. wet periods, yeah. that kind of thing. So here's, here's, here's what I'm really concerned about is what... What is the okay? So we have stronger. We have all that, all those weather events, all those changes because of climate change. What does that mean in terms of food production? Um, so, for example, Iowa is you know almost entirely rain-fed corn, um, or the corn I should say is almost entirely rain-fed and the in Iowa. Uh, you're exactly. We don't we don't have we don't have irrigation, um, you know, like they do out in Nebraska yeah. here, um, and and it's not obvious that that's that that's um, going to be able to continue there. A lot of the um, expectation is that the uh, uh, rain-fed region moves kind of up to the north and to the east. Uh, and so, yeah, large parts of the state, for example, that may no, no longer be feasible. Yeah. What about uh, the 
possibility that certain insects, certain fungal diseases, certain things that right now aren't that big a deal or are easily managed could get much worse and make it difficult or impossible to grow certain crops. Yeah, I mean, we often don't like the the frost, um, you know, when it gets really cold. But the the cold does kill things off. Yeah. Um, and so when we lose that, um, then you know there 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 are certainly a number of pests that um, that can become prevalent that aren't. It helps know. the soil. Uh, I mean, the, the the freezing and thawing process is beneficial for our soil as well. There, yeah, there are lots of benefits. Obviously. Well, yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the main thing is that stuff is changing, right? So the main thing is that we've, we've kind of built a system around what we, what, what, what we can grow here. And as that changes, all that system doesn't, doesn't work anymore. And obviously, in warmer climates, you know, people can grow other things. Um, so I don't want to overstate uh, that. But, but the, 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 what we do here in Iowa, that, that what is so economically successful, um, you know, is unlikely to be um, you know, long-term sustainable. Mm, okay. So um, bottom line is we've got to cut back on fossil fuel use. Maybe we've got to even somehow find a way to sequester carbon dioxide uh, that's already up in the atmosphere causing problems. What about the proposal to sequester carbon that's coming off our ethanol plants, put that on a pipeline and ship it to North Dakota? The question I'm now asking everybody. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. So yeah, the IPCC says that you know we're going to need to remove uh, carbon from the atmosphere uh, if we want to hit goals that we that we are uh, hoping to be able to hit. And you know we know that like if we do a, a, a risk assessment, um, you know four thousand tons I think of of uh, added CO two to the atmosphere is is um, expected to kill one person in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, if we can do it, and if we can do it economically, and we can do it without, um, you know, supporting industries that are uh, creating the problem, I think it, it's, it's a necessary thing um, and can have really significant benefits. Yeah, but uh, merely capturing CO2 that is being emitted Presently, I mean, it's not—it's not already up in the atmosphere. It's new stuff, right? That seems—that seems less desirable to me. So yeah. So the question is, um, you know, how how does the transition look? Um, you know, and so if this if this carbon capture uh, lengthens the transition from um, carbon emitting fuel sources to carbon zero fuel sources by, for example, uh, you know, encouraging people to keep driving, uh, you know fossil fuel vehicles in California or whatever, um, then, then, then it's not producing benefits. But if, if what we're doing is we're taking things in the transition period and removing that carbon dioxide, then, it's, then it is. So the problem with this is that it's all about the specific details of every project um, yeah. as far if you want to figure out, well, is this one you know, a win or not? Yeah. All right. Well, we could talk more about that, and we will, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, folks, uh, David Karat-Hari is my guest here. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. It was really fun. Yeah. We'll be back in a short time, folks, with uh, more conversation here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. 
Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham is adamantly and actively committed to supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and planet. And he works to implement that vision through his stewardship of architecture by synthesis. You can learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. again folks back from a short break thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum hey you know uh, without your support we couldn't do this so we sure appreciate the, the people who have stepped forward to uh, pledge a donation or a monthly pledge even you know our five dedicated volunteers couldn't do it without you so if you're not supporting the program already consider it it matters go to the Fallon Forum website for more information and thanks also to our Local business partners here in the Des Moines metro, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods is a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com or stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. All right, so it is that time of the uh, year where elections happen. And, of course, um, in Iowa, as in much of the country, we call these the off-year elections, the uh, municipal elections. In some cases, the nonpartisan elections, and that's the case in Iowa. School board elections and city council elections are all nonpartisan or at least they used to be, or at least they are on paper, but it's getting much, much more uh, <laughs> partisan. And before I talk about that, let me just give you an update. And again, nobody's, Texas is alone in terms of enacting the most restrictive voter law in the country. And, and beyond whatever Texas and any other state has done to try to make it tougher to vote, the biggest problem is, of course, redistricting, which we will talk about before the end of this segment. Let me start by saying, though, that right now, uh, if, you know, if, you're, if, if you're in Iowa or a lot of other states, you'll be voting that first Tuesday in November. And uh, like many states, voting has become more difficult in Iowa. And that's, um, you know, historically, voting elections... The, the role of county auditors has all been very nonpartisan. It's, it's, not been, it's not been a contentious area of law. In fact, I remember, I remember first meeting uh, now U.S. Senator Joni Ernst and Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. I met them both on the same day. I was the ranking member of the House Local Government Committee here in Iowa, and they came in to lobby me. They came in together. And they, uh, they, were, they were both county officials at that time. And again, nonpartisan. They, they presented an idea that was supported by Democratic and Republican auditors, recorders, other local officials across the state. I can't even remember what it was. It was very non-controversial. I supported it. Uh, they lobbied me for it. I supported it. I, I, wish it. I wish it would work the other way, where when I lobbied them, they would support what I want them to do because that hasn't happened yet. It has, unfortunately, become very partisan. And the most recent voter 
election law changes in Iowa, which some of us, including me, would call voter suppression, passed last year, and they are taking effect now. Now, uh, some of those are, seem fairly small. For example, the number of uh, days you can vote early has been reduced from 29 to 20, so cutting, cutting by almost a third. That now starts on October 13th. Uh, and another change is the polls now close at 8 p.m. instead of 9 p.m. And I remember people getting off work and only being able to get to the polls because they had that extra hour. So, you know, those, those do make a difference. You know, and, and now you, you have to have requested an absentee ballot uh, by, October, um, by October 18th. You know, so it's, it's really, these are, these are a lot of small nicks and cuts that add up to making a difference. I think the biggest change is this, in Iowa at least, and that is that no one can return your absentee ballot for you except a family member or somebody else who lives in your household or a caregiver if you live in an assisted living arrangement. You know, it used to be that anybody could return a ballot for you, um, and, and that's, that's a big deal. That could hurt more than anything. So, you know, Republicans have, um, have uh, uh, partisanized uh, the uh, local nonpartisan elections. Here's Governor Kim Reynolds saying, quote, so let's all come together and treat this November like it's next November. That was her commandment to uh, fellow Republicans this past week. And uh, according to Democrats, Republicans have a terrible slate of candidates here in Polk County. And this is for nonpartisan offices. So they're calling them out. Democrats are calling them out as Republicans. And the leading Republican in the state, Governor Kim Reynolds, is encouraging those Republican candidates to run, to you know, wear their Republican credentials proudly, and to encouraging Republican voters to get out and support them. Basically, again, making these nonpartisan elections very partisan. So Democrats point out that uh, some of the school board candidates include uh, a candidate who campaigned against masks, uh, include a candidate who was at the January 6th uh, rally. I'm being polite now, calling it a rally and not a riot or an insurrection. The January 6th rally, one of the candidates running for the school board, for a school board position here in, in Polk County, was at that rally. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was a candidate who helped, um, uh, who organized a stamping party to help parents get around school mask requirements. I'm not even quite sure what that is. And there was another candidate who was charged with terrorism for threatening to shoot up a school. Uh, that's a candidate for the Ankeny School District who apparently made that threat at a school in Waukee. So, you know, there are some crazy people running. <laughs> I get that. Um, but, uh, again, I don't, think, I don't think it serves either party very well or the voters very well or our school districts very well to make these seem like partisan races. Okay, so call out the people who are doing things or saying things you don't like. But, you know, I wouldn't go that far. All right, so um, redistricting is uh, much I – mean, these, these are important elections. School board, city council, all very important but redistricting is the big fish. And that's, um, that's a, historically, that has not been as big a deal in Iowa because we have this system where a nonpartisan agency, the Legislative Services Agency, draws up the maps. And that, that, that has happened, uh, it, ha, it, ha, it has happened every time, in all, every 10 years in Iowa that we've had this system. 
The services agency draws up the map. The legislature will either vote for the first one. If it doesn't like the first one, the LSA will come back and draw a second one. The legislature has always approved first or second map. And right now, the Democrats have said they like the first map well enough. The Republicans have been very coy about this. Now, this is uh, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, and yes, the grandson of U.S. Senator for life, Chuck Grassley, says, quote, this is, a, this is a decision for 10 years. I don't think it's something you can rush out immediately and be like yes or no. I think you have to make sure you really think through and take all the factors into play, end quote. My take on that is the House and Senate Republicans in Iowa are getting ready to reject the first map. That's not such a big deal. They may do that, and what happens is the LSA, the Legislative Services Agency, comes back with a second map if the Republicans reject that one, and that's never happened. It's never happened that the legislators rejected the second map. If they do, then the legislature gets to write its own map, and by the legislature, I mean Senate and House Republicans, because they control all the marbles. They hold all the cards. They will write that map, and it will very probably be partisan and, uh, and be, be drafted in such a way as to create districts that protect legislative incumbent Republicans, but also create congressional districts that are likely to elect Republicans. That is very unfortunate and um, wrong. Uh, again, there are states that are beginning to look at Iowa's model and thinking about, well, maybe we should go that route as well. Because it's, it's, gotten, it's ridiculous. You can look at maps from around the country in states like Texas, like Pennsylvania, like North Carolina, and see these, these absurd districts that are clearly not created with any geographic consideration in mind. The only consideration is partisan uh, partisan uh, you know, boundaries, cre creating a map that will be favorable to one party or the other. And in almost all cases, they are favorable to Republicans. There are some states, Maryland, that do gerrymandering that is favorable to Democrats. But for the most part, this has been a Republican problem. And so uh, it could happen in Iowa, even as other states are beginning to look at our system and saying, hey, maybe this is sane. Maybe we should consider doing this. You know, we have that happening. And meanwhile, we are very much concerned that this could go the wrong way here in Iowa. And we'll know, more, we'll know soon enough because to, uh, October 5th, that's the day we're... Um, having this conversation. In fact, October 5th, the legislature is meeting as I speak, and we will know probably by the end of today whether Republicans reject that first map. I will be surprised if they don't. Uh, then there'll be another 35-day window whereby the LSA draws up that second map. So we're looking at a, um, another special session to review and approve or disapprove that map by the you know mid mid-November, late November, probably before Thanksgiving. And then by December 1st, that's the date the, U the Iowa Supreme Court has set for the legislature to have finalized a map. So mid-November, Republicans reconvene the legislature, disapprove the second map. They have a couple weeks to draft their own. It's, it's sent to the governor. It's signed. Boom, it's done. And I, I, I have great concern that that could happen. Great concern. So we'll see. Uh, I, I hope I'm wrong. We'll have some updates on that. We'll have some updates on what's happening elsewhere in the country with redistricting. Uh, again, it's not a pretty situation. And we've already seen that the Supreme Court 
while taking occasionally some interest in the conversation, has largely said, well, not our problem. It's up to the states. They can do what they want, even if they're doing, even if they're creating these maps that are clearly and blatantly partisan. And, uh, and again, it's not just that they disenfranchise Democratic voters, they disenfranchise minority voters, poor voters, uh, you know, folks who need that voice in government more than anybody. And those, those are the voters being disenfranchised by gerrymandering. We'll see where this goes, folks. Um, again, uh, we got a ways to go yet here in Iowa and around the, around the country. There's, um, still, this is still in progress because of the late census data being reviewed. Okay, hey, we're going to take a short break here. When we come back, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me. We're going to have our October Garden Q&A here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. It's brilliant October weather here in central Iowa. And I'd like to take a second to thank our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's harvest time. Uh, the corn is being combined, so are the beans. And for those of us who are growing food uh, for immediate consumption, for local consumption, for our own consumption, well, the harvest continues. It starts in March, pretty much, <laughs> or April. And here we are uh, at the height of it uh, with plenty of conversation about, about uh, what happens in your garden in October. And to join me for that conversation is Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks. It is a beautiful, splendid October day. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what, uh, what kind of uh, questions and inquiries are you seeing or you're receiving directly or hearing through the grapevine that me, we might want to take a, a stab at? Well, at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we try to keep on top of what people's gardening issues are month to month, comment on those when we can and help folks out, incorporate that into our workshops that we offer for growing food to eat not for combining. Um, <laughs> uh, the, we pull a few questions off of a, a couple of Facebook pages. The first one isn't really a question. Uh, it was a comment. It says, it's the last big harvest for the year, 
pulling everything next week. And there was a photo of watermelons, tomatoes, and peppers. And that wasn't a question, but we're going to respond to and it. And what week was that? That was last week? That was last week. So in September? Last week of oh, September. Gosh. Take your time. My question is, why are you doing that? <laughs> I, I, I guess I have a What's question. What's wrong with you? <laughs> if the watermelons are done, fine. Um, you know, you know when they're done. They're they're not going to come on anymore. But tomatoes, tomatoes will still ripen, and there's really no reason to pull them unless you have some crucial need for that space. For instance, like you might be getting ready to plant a cold frame for next uh, for this winter. Yeah. And you'd want to plant that. Well, in central Iowa, you'd want to plant your coal frame, what, mid-October or so? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, in fact, there is a plot that we have cherry tomatoes in, and we are thinking of pulling those up pretty soon. They're not producing just terrifically this year, and so we're going to get it ready for the cold frame, and then we can start having our winter greens growing. Yeah. And, you know, tomatoes, uh, we still have tomatoes that are flowering. Uh, those flowers may not produce any fruit, but there's a lot of small fruit. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, I think last year, we harvested, just uh, before the first killing frost, we harvested, oh, a couple five-gallon buckets of green tomatoes. Yep. Made various things with those green mm -hmm. tomatoes and then let some of them ripen. My goal is always to have at least one red tomato directly from the garden on Thanksgiving. And it can happen. <laughs> it happens. And one thing to do with those green tomatoes, if you're not a fried green tomato person or you've had your fill of them, is to um, to roast them, and you can freeze those, and they are wonderful in a curry. In a curry dish in the winter, there's something very warming and comforting about that. Uh, next question is about potato harvest. Um, somebody said they, they did their harvest, and they showed a photo of one very large potatoes and two very small potatoes, <laughs> and they said, guess all the energy went to the first potato. And that might, that's an interesting theory. We've had mixed bag of potato harvest this year. Well, yeah, uh, but the beds that have been good have just been, I mean, great. We had, uh, what, 35 pounds out of an 8 by 4 bed mm -hmm. yesterday. And, uh, you know, part of the challenge is how do you store them? How do you store them? <laughs> um, and that variety was that the, was the Dakota, uh, Dakota Pearl. Pearl. Yeah, first mm -hmm. time growing that variety. Very impressed. It was delicious. And we, yeah. we had it this morning in the box tea, or was that a box tea, yes. <laughs> Potato pancakes. <laughs> right, right. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know why someone would get just one big one and two small ones. There's lots of reasons. I mean, one, one problem we had this year was ants. Mm, they decimated one bed. And, you know, I think the biggest problem is poor soil. You know, soil that's mm. not... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you want, we had one, we were gardening at one place this, this year where the uh, previous uh, owner, the previous garden had put in um, wire and landscape fabric. So there's no the way to get, of the bed. yeah, you can't get a deep, you can't get a deep, you know, growth there at all. And uh, that was a pretty bad harvest too. <laughs> we'll once again reiterate our preaching against chicken wire, especially at the bottom of a garden bed and landscape fabric. Yes, landscape fabric help, should be doesn't illegal. Do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're going to get flack for that. I know. Anytime I you know. anytime you come out against landscape fabric, the landscape fabric lobby comes down hard. Oh gosh, yeah. They're, they're, they're outside the window watching us right now. Um, here's another question. I've heard if you clip your squash vines at the end of the season, the ones that are already on have a better chance of ripening. Uh, I, that might be logical, but why do that? Yeah, yeah because let we them, let ours go. Yeah, yeah, let them just keep going. And what, and what do you do when you get with a with a small? It, you, you get you get to the first frost hits, or just before the first frost, you pick your last 
squashes and pumpkins and zucchinis mm-hmm. and what do you got? And you'll have some beautifully ripe ones and some unripe ones. But those unripe squash, you can't, if the peel is hard already, you can peel it or you can use the peel if it's really soft. You can shred those or grate them up just like you would zucchini, freeze it and mm. use it in a bread. If you have a zucchini bread recipe, use that grated squash. It's delicious. I wonder if you could grill an unripe squash like you would a zucchini. That would be fun to try. Let's gonna, try that this We're going to try that. We're going to yes, try that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, somebody says that Brussels sprouts are their Achilles heel. Can anybody tell what's going on? And there's a, there's a photo of a bunch of really poor looking Brussels sprouts. A lot of uh, tall stalks, but very few sprouts to eat. That sounds like ours. <laughs> yeah, we're going to admit that we have this, uh, this is a tough nut to crack, and a lot of people say in Iowa it's hard. Uh, we did have a new neighbor give us some advice, and that's to plant them later in the year next year so that they yeah. are not out in that severe heat. So July, I think. Late July, Late maybe? July hmm. to plant Yeah, and we have one friend uh, who uh, we did a garden assessment for a couple of years ago, and they have just beautiful Brussels sprouts, short plants. Mm-hmm. But they're really doing well. Yeah, yeah. We need to we need to do more research on that. Yeah. Uh, one more question? Yeah, sure. So somebody says they're looking to add some new things to the garden next year, and they're asking what are some less common veggies that you love? Uh, this person says uh, they grow the basics already, the short list of things that they might try, and this to them would be new mm-hmm. or different would be butternut squash, potatoes, Swiss chard, celery, shelling peas, and heat-tolerant greens. We say yes to all of that, and that's yeah. not unusual stuff. Yeah. I think a fall garden is really under, underrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's if you if you get started in late July, early August, I mean, right now we have turnips we'll be harvesting in about a month. We have carrots coming on, beets. Mm-hmm. We have right now, incredibly, I mean, the best harvest of peas I've, we've ever had in the fall. Really Gorgeous. excellent peas. And that's Swenson Swedish. We highly recommend And we've that, harvested right? just from one four by eight bed, probably two gallons of green beans. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have you can have a great fall garden. Uh, and, and, and maybe in the new climate era, a fall garden makes even more sense than it ever did before because of the extended season. Well, and this know? question wasn't specific to a fall garden, but in right, right. using the fall season to plan for next year. So definitely use some of those, for instance, the peas. Use that to rotate out where you've had tomato right. yeah. or some other heavy feeder and add that nitrogen back. And again, in terms of odd crops, my favorite is okra. okra. <laughs> <laughs> I love okra. Our okra is about eight or nine maybe feet tall. You have to. That's why you have to harvest. Well, it. I have to bend the. I have to bend the stock, the the uh, the plant down to, to clip the, uh, the the highest okra pods right now. They're very <laughs> but, pretty. Yeah. Hey, thanks for joining us, folks. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks to our other guests today, David May, Jerry Schnoor, and David Corrad Hari. Thanks to our production squad of Sherry Hardina, Forrest Detterman, Kathy Burns, and Charles Goldman. Thanks to our small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic. Western Optometry, Groovy Goods, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks to you for supporting this program. Tune in again next week, folks, for another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.